Jendra Jarnigan is a film, TV, and commercial cinematographer whose projects have played at Sundance and Tribeca and have streamed on Hulu and Paramount+. She also recently completed work on the Warner Brothers television show, East New York. But before working as a cinematographer, Jendra began her career as a gaffer and electrician. To me, it was good cinematography. It was all about the lighting. So I wanted to develop the lighting side of myself by being an electrician for other gaffers or being a gaffer for other DPs and getting to collaborate. In this episode, Jendra explains her path to becoming a cinematographer. We then delve into her approach to lighting and filming projects such as the music video, Oprah, for the music artist, Rhapsody, and the show, East New York. We also discuss how approaches to cinematography and lighting are changing with new advancements in technology. Democratization of filmmaking, you know, has pros and its cons, but largely is very exciting in terms of what people are able to create with very little resources. That's all coming up shortly. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with Jendra Jarnigan. Jendra, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Jacob. It feels like we're catching you at the right moment because it sounds like soon you're going to LA. Is that the plan? Yeah, I just wrapped a 10-month television series, East New York, my first full season of television. And I've sort of been bi-coastal for a while and have an established life and relationships and friends in in Los Angeles as well. Uh, So I'm going out for the Cine Gear trade show at the beginning of June. When you signed up to be a DP many years ago, did you anticipate the amount of movement you would do, the time zone changes? New York to L.A. I know a lot of people have different opinions about L.A. versus New York, and I'm wondering if that even fit into your original thought process. It did. Um, I always viewed L.A. as a sort of eventual inevitability, but I found that most New Yorkers who are established professionals in the film industry, the reason they live in New York and not L.A. is because they don't like L.A. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we're like just going to throw shade at L.A. If they liked L.A., they would be there. Right. I mean, the reason, only reason to stay in New York and if you're in the film business is because you hate L.A. Um, so we're anti-L.A. in this building. Uh, no, I don't, I don't hate L.A. at all. Actually, the more time I spend there, the more I like it. But I went to NYU and I did not. I grew up in Rhode Island, so New York was a lot closer and, and flying across the country to go to college just felt really scary in terms of being away from my family. But I didn't realize until a few years into my career when I started going to L.A. how much bigger the industry is there comparatively. And I realized at a certain point in my career, I needed to be known in L.A. even to get the good jobs in New York because the decision makers are in L.A. So I, you know, from a networking standpoint, started going to LA for events and trade shows and, you know, ASC awards and open houses and such like that. And ended up developing many friendships in LA and spent a lot of winters there when I wasn't working in New York to escape the cold. (laughs) So you find you can balance staying your home base in New York, but just going to LA that's doable for you forever. Yeah, I have enough friends to stay with uh, in a cost-free sort of situation that I've been there. I spend probably a few months a year there. And I have people that I've met in in L.A. that don't even realize that I live in New York because they see me regularly enough in L.A. I'm interested for a moment to just go back in time, if we can, time travel to a different era in your life, perhaps a simpler time. (laughs) I don't know. That's not true. I'm projecting a lot here. 
but you're in high school, going to school in Rhode Island. And during that time period, you find your way into working as part of a school program at a public access station. And you describe it as it's sort of igniting, you know, this flame and inspiring you to move ahead and work towards working in the film industry. That's correct. Okay, good. I did my homework yeah, correctly. That's I'm nice. Impressed. Thank you very much. I'm wondering if you can explain what was that process like and what about those pivotal moments really lit that bulb to make you want to move forward? I feel like at an age of 15 or 16, sometimes some people don't really have the foresight to see where they're going to go yet. And it sounds like you were very confident in your decision at even a pretty young age. Yeah, it was actually middle school. So it was actually oh, I didn't get all my homework. Yeah, right. you're, you're close. All but right. it, it was actually at age 12 when okay. I first uh, was exposed to the public access program. And I had loved books and storytelling and I had loved photography. And when I, you know, went into this TV studio, it just sort of sparked a lot of like, wow, th th these are people's jobs. Like being a kid, frankly, at age 12, the idea of like, what do you want to be when you grow up was what I had been exposed to so far were all the very traditional ideas of like doctor, lawyer, astronaut, firefighter. <laughs> kind of, these are the people in your neighborhood. Seeing all these people doing these really interesting and exciting jobs was like, oh, wow, people do this, you know, for, for a living. And I basically put two and two together that people make movies. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I, through the program and the opportunities that were extended to me there in terms of exploring my creativity and writing and camera and, you know, setups and teching different positions and et cetera, the more that I did it, the more that I loved it. And the uh, facilitator of the program saw my passion and my talent for this and how serious I was about it. And I started asking about a filmmaking and career paths and he sort of took me under his wing and told me, you know, you could go to NYU or he knew enough about filmmaking and he knew which colleges actually offered film production programs versus film study programs, which were there were far less of them back in the 80s than there are now. You know, my, my mother did not want me to move to New York City or California. And she's like, why can't you go to BU? Why can't you go to Rhode Island College. So she was like, you're not leaving the city. Don't yeah, do she, this. She hated New York. Uh, she'd been here alone in the 70s while my father was uh, at a convention and just had a horrible experience, um, you know, roaming the city alone in terms of being maybe harassed or whatever it was. She had a horrible uh, depiction of, of New York. So, yeah, in this program, I got to to explore, you know, several facets of that. And through learning more about the filmmaking process, learned you know, what the cinematographer's role was and was pretty surprised to find out that I didn't actually want to be a director. I just sort of assumed that. I assumed those were the people who made movies or were, quote unquote, in charge of the creative decisions of making movies. But learning the role of the things that I was actually interested in and where my talents lied were someone else's job. That's not actually the director's job was pretty surprising. So I went to NYU undergrad, pretty sure that I wanted to be a cinematographer but open to the idea that I didn't really know until I did both, until I did hands-on directing and cinematography for me to try them both on to see what felt right. So you just had an inkling that 
you wanted to be in the industry in a creative position, but you weren't quite sure what. You're like, I'll figure that out once I get there. Yeah. I, I, and from what I had been told, it sounded like cinematography was the right path for me. But I also just recognized I was going by hearsay and, and then I didn't really know until I did them both. So w- within a year of school and, and the uh, exercises and roles that you play on each other's crews in, in film school, I was like, yep, cinematography it is, directing it's not. And what appealed to you about cinematography over directing? At least at NYU, the directing was really intertwined with writing, which is really not my strong suit. Cinematography in terms of the visual language and visual storytelling, not that that's not the director's job, it absolutely is, but I really lean towards supporting the director's vision and and my creativity can spark and grow, you know, once I've already had a jumping off point. I'm, I, I know people who are great ideators and initiator of uh, ideas from, from scratch, and that's really not my strong suit. I make the analogy of a sandbox or a sandcastle. Like, I can help you build a really beautiful sandcastle, but I'm not a designer of sandboxes. Like, I need the spark of like, oh, okay, this is the the project or this is the script or this is the story that I want to sink my teeth into and go on this journey with you, but I'm not the person to pull the ideas out of thin air and, you know, write the story. Or people have asked me if, you know, if I want to direct and especially with independent filmmaking, the director's paths that I've seen is taking a a single project and living with that for three to five years from, you know, the script stage to trying to get it made, trying to convince people to give you money, getting it made, editing it, and then taking it on festivals and distribution and taking one story and having that be your life for five years does not appeal to me. Yeah, I, I want to, you know, show up, give my contribution, be involved, be done, move on to the next thing and do a, n- a new story. So you're, you're in film school, you're finding your footing, you're deciding that cinematography is indeed the path Someone gives you a sandbox and you're ready to go. From NYU, your goal is to become a cinematographer, but you start working in the gaffer and electrical department. It seems like your goal is because it's rare that someone will just hire you right away out of film school to become a cinematographer. They're saying, well, let me start here and gain some experience. It's interesting. I hear a lot of people I know starting in the assistant camera department. Is it pretty common for people during that time to jump into gaffing and electrical as kind of a pipeline into the DP area? It's actually more common to go the camera assistant route. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it depends like what your path is. If you go the sort of union crew member, you know, then it's like, okay, you're the loader, then you're a second AC, then you're a first AC, then you're a camera operator, then you're a DP. You know, there's many steps in between and you need, you know, to I don't want to say graduate, but be given the stepping stone into the next level to to climb all of those rungs of the ladder. So that that is the traditional way. But I didn't really look at it that way back in the film school crew structure. It was sort of like, okay, there's the gaffer and there's the AC and the gaffers involved in the lighting. And what to me was good cinematography is all about the lighting. So I want to develop the lighting side of myself by being an electrician for other gaffers or being a gaffer for other DPs and getting to collaborate in that way or working on crews in the lighting department where I'm getting exposed to different techniques, different approaches that are all things that I 
am absorbing to add to my tool set and to my own cinematography. I just found the lighting department to be a far more engaging and, and creative path uh, for me than focus pulling. I, and I wasn't a good focus puller anyway. Is it, focus pulling is a very specific yeah. talent that people either have a knack for or they don't. Do you remember particular lessons, you know, for lack of a better word, aha moments you were observing or participating in when you were working as a gaffer or even if how a set was run? It was a pretty big milestone when I started working on union productions as an electrician, like working on Sex in the City and being a part of that crew was very formulative experience for me. And I had been a gaffer prior to joining the union, and a lot of people are like, do you really want to be an electrician in the union and just be a laborer and work from the neck down and you have no creative contribution? Do you just want to be, you know, one of a million people? Like, is it actually going to be, not a million people, but is that actually going to be rewarding to you? Or do you want to stay a gaffer that you are, you know, a leader and a creative collaborator and at that point, I just wanted a side job. I just wanted something <laughs> to, like, to earn, the money. yeah, to earn the money so that I could keep shooting for. At that point, shooting for free and support myself for shooting for free as I developed my cinematography reel and my experience in my body of work. But I was surprised to find, you know, once I got on certain crews that got to know me and knew that I was an aspiring DP. I mean, I remember. I guess you're asking a sort of a pivotal moment that I'd worked on Sex in the City for years as a regular day player. And they knew that I, you know, knew lighting and understood lighting. And normally when you're being delegated, like, oh, okay, here's your task. Take these lights and they'll give you like a lot of detail and go and do this and give you a lot of detail. And I remember just being told, oh, Jendra, uh, take a handful of park hands and go light up that train trestle. That's it. That's like, it. So I was given creative ownership of a piece of the lighting set up. They entrusted me to just decide what, how many, where, how, uh, what it would look like, and that I would, you know, report back when I was ready to show what I had done, await feedback, and then they would tweak it to their liking. But that level of trust of like, we don't need to micromanage you. We can just give you an independent task was like, oh, wow. Okay. They, <laughs> they trust me. They believe. They, they, yes. That was a sort of a pivotal moment of like, this is not just a thoughtless laborer job where you don't have creative contribution. You know, once you're established with a group of people who know your skills and, and talents, you can absolutely have a level of contribution. And at that point, did you feel fully confident in lighting up that space? Yeah, that was not something that intimidated me at all. That was something I did all the time in my you know, own DP projects or even having been a gaffer in the past. I, I felt very seen <laughs> of like, oh, wow, you, you can you can do this. And I, I remember being excited about it. And so simultaneously, you mentioned you're working on your side projects. It sounds daunting to jump from doing this all day gaff work and then jumping into just cinematography projects where you're not really getting paid to do them, or I imagine minimally. What is that process like juggling these two worlds at the same time? And how are you finding that work to do as you're also working union? I wasn't full-time working okay. union. So, so that's key then. Yeah. You know, I never took a full-time position on any TV shows or movies because I was really holding it as a side job. So the people that I worked with, like on Sex and the City, and I worked on Law & Order for a few years knew me as a sort of a regular day player in their day player pool. 
So on Sex in the City, for example, if I were to take a, a short film to go shoot, I would just tell my supervisor, my best boy, like, oh, I'm going to be unavailable for the next three weeks. I'm taking a short, going to go shoot a short. And I had the freedom to do that and was established enough with them that I felt comfortable. And it was true that I, when I was done, I'd call them and be like, oh, I'm available again. And then they put me back into rotation. So that was a really great support system of like, I was finally making enough of a living that I could take time away to focus on the shooting jobs. And because I had those credits, because I was you know, working on big TV shows in the lighting department, that was some really good street cred for landing short films. Because even though you're working for free, it's still competitive. You, you still have to beat other people out of that job who are also working their way up to even land the opportunity to shoot someone else's project for free or for $100 a day or whatever, you know, token payment, those kind of projects could afford to pay someone. So yeah, the, the fact that I had those credits was like, oh, wow, that this is an established professional who really knows their way around sets and, you know, lighting, et cetera, that actually helped me. So then what is the moment where you decide, okay, I'm done with gaffing. I'm a full-time cinematographer now. Is there a pivotal moment where you remember being like, oh, okay, well now I can actually do what I intended to do from day one? The last few years of my electrician career, I sort of had one foot out the door where I was shooting more and more and doing less and less uh, electric work. And I got to the point where I was doing so little electric work that I wasn't going to make my health insurance anymore. Like your health insurance is based on the number of days that you work in the six month period. So simultaneously was sort of at a plateau in my cinematography career where I was shooting a lot of short films and frankly, landing every job that I interviewed for and realized if that's happening, you're not aiming high enough. You need to find the features and music videos and commercials. And, and I didn't really know I was sort of in this short film bubble and I didn't really know how to find that kind of work. And I was like, well, I need to spend some time investing in advancing my career. And I'm not able to do that if I'm just going to fill all of my available days with my side job. I actually need to spend some focused time and say no to the days of work in order to develop, you know, my path and taking the next step. So it was around that time that I was realizing it was time to let go of the side job. So I remember my last full feature as an electrician was the Strangers with Candy movie. Oh, wow. and, and the gaffer who I had worked for a while and he had been gaffing for me as well. You know, when I would do short projects, calls me up and is like, oh, I've got a little movie. And, you know, he told me the dates and it was low budget, still union. So you still got your health insurance credits, but the pay was low. And, you know, he started to tell me how low the pay was. And I was like, that's OK. I, I want to do it. And then he started giving me more and more disclaimers. Oh, it's going to be really hard. And, the, and I was like, I said yes. <laughs> like, I've already, <laughs> I've already said yes. This. Yeah. Because I knew that it fit into the, oh, if I, I'm available right now, if I take this three or four week job that will, you know, finish off my health insurance cycle and then I'll be done. And then I did like, I think it was just one week on um, a movie called The Family Stone with Sarah Jessica Parker. It was a Christmas movie that shot in LA, but did, uh, whether it was a week or a week or two in New York on location. And that was January, 2005. And when I took that gig, I knew it was my last electrician job. I knew at the end of this, the last day I'm hanging up my tool belt Whoa. and I'm 
leaving this behind. And knowing that when I did, it was kind of exciting. And the irony, when I worked on that project, I was prepping a short film that was shooting in Spain and the producer lived in Texas. This was before we had Zoom and sort of like remote pre-production tools that drop, we didn't even have Dropbox yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> or a rotary phoning yeah, it. Yeah, so it's we're, like, everything we're doing by phone. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm going to come to New York so we can finish off some of our prep in person. So he made a visit to New York in order to meet with me to finish the prepping. And I had like an overnight night exterior shoot. And I like asked my boss, did he have any sense of what time we would be done. And he was like, what a ridiculous question. Like, you, you should know by now. Like, we have, we don't know. We're done when we're done. Like, why are you even asking me this? And he got really upset with me. And I was just like, oh, shit, this is starting to conflict. Where, yeah. like, this side job's getting in the way of, you know, this person came from Texas to meet with me. And I'm like, don't even have an answer for them. Of like, what time I'll be ready to meet them in the morning. Yeah, that's a lot of, of juggling. Yeah. It's like you're living a double life. Yeah. Was there a sadness that came with leaving? Gaffing, it was kind of like, you know, your first, it sounds like, job out of school in the industry, or were you just ready to move forward? The sadness came a little bit later, where I really missed the family environment of the crew, where, you know, being with the same crew, especially in a TV show, is like a family for, for, for years. And the camaraderie, the downtime between setups is its own sort of like social structure. Like I, I didn't have much of a social life outside of work, but I wasn't hungry for one because I was getting all of my social needs sort of met within that crew structure. So I I ended up missing that in a way that I was surprised to to find out because the projects that I was working on as a DP were much shorter shooting schedules. And also it's a different different role. You're just concentrating the entire time and what are we doing next? And it's not the same you're connecting with people in a very different way than, you know, when you're one of the team that is like the lighting crew that, so I missed it. As you get deeper into the industry, do you weigh what makes a satisfying project in different terms? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I've done so many different kinds of projects over the years and had really great experiences and had some horrible experiences. And at a certain point, and, and a lot of my colleagues feel the same way, it becomes more and more important to you who you're working with, um, more so than the script, more so than the project or even the particulars uh, or the logistics around the project. It's like, we just want to work with good people. We just want to work with people that we connect with, that we're creatively aligned with, that we enjoy spending time with. And that that's priceless. The more I talk to people who are more deeply established in the industry, that's mostly what we're chasing. Are there particular projects in recent years that come to mind that you really just found so fulfilling on multiple levels, both creatively and just in terms of being on set with a great group of people? I'd say two different projects. The most obvious one is, is having just completed my first full season of TV as a DP on East New York. That was sort of 10 months of my life, but some of that was prep. So like nine plus months of shooting is that became my family for that period of time. And I love those people. And, you know, we just recently found out that we were not renewed. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah. So I was surprised to, to find, you know, that I wanted to do another season. Like I, I thought when I took the job that I was like, oh, okay, it's a, it's a police procedural, you know, that's pretty mainstream for my taste, lean much more towards edgy and weird 
kind of content. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a stepping stone and, and I'll learn a lot and I'll make the, the most of it and then I'll move on. And I was surprised to come to find out that I didn't want to move on, that I wanted, I wanted to do another season, that, you know, I, I loved these people and, and I didn't want to let go of them. Talking to other DPs who've done TV that I hit the jackpot on my, my first show of having, you know, the combination of a great crew uh, great actors, great scripts, you know, very solid, experienced producers. And to have all of those, you know, pieces of the puzzle fulfilled, like everyone else I talked to is like, oh, yeah, th those are so few and far between. Otherwise, another project that I had done prior to that one called Asking For It was a feature film we shot in Oklahoma, was a indie female vigilante revenge thriller. And that was really rewarding creatively that the the content the director Eamon O'Rourke and his visual style were something that I had really been hungry for getting to sink my teeth into doing something boldly stylized you know myself like many DPs have the philosophy that the visual should support the story and I don't believe in gimmicky cinematography if, if you're noticing that shot then you're taking the viewer out of the story instead of supporting the story. So so for me, that means a lot of projects that naturalism and understated cinematography is the right choice for the story. But to have a story that was really boldly visual was a great opportunity and, and would love to do more projects like that. After, you know, working in the industry for a significant amount of time, do you have some guiding light questions you ask yourself sometimes when you go back to breaking down a story? Because I imagine when you're reading a script, sometimes it's tempting to imagine what can be done visually versus what serves the story. Are there moments where you have to check yourself and say, okay, well, that would be cool, but that doesn't necessarily serve the story. Or you're reading the script and saying, okay, what is the best practice to move forward and plan these shots? You know, one of the questions I'll always come back to is whose point of view is it? Hmm. In, in terms of the story, like whose experience are we in right now? And that is a big guiding light into how we portray the experience of any given scene is someone coming from a place of being curious and, and scared. You know, what, what is the goal and the motivation of, of whether that's the main character or who any given scene, what's the character's point of view? And so that to me informs the visuals more so than, than anything else. And then some scripts, if, especially if you have a writer director, have, you know, visual cues written into the way that something is described. Right. So I'll, I'll listen for those, of course. And then, you know, th those may be peppered throughout, but then you sort of get like, oh, well, if they're feeling this about that, like how also does that translate into the rest of the story? And I'm always looking for a visual arc. Like I, I don't want to just make a bunch of haphazard scenes that don't relate to one another. It's sort of like, what is the character arc or what is the story arc? And how do we portray that visually of like going on a journey of how do things progress, you know, in a, in a parallel way to the, the character's journey. That's interesting. And I think that might be a really good moment to segue to talk about some specific projects you've done. One of them is a music video you shot, I believe in 2019, for the artist Rhapsody. She has this really great song called Oprah. And you collaborated with director Farah X on that project. One of the challenges of music video is, of course, you're telling this very concise visual story that has to meld very well with the song and kind of fit the aesthetics and tone of the artist and the story they're telling. 
first, just how did that collaboration come to be? And then from there, how do you move forward and address some of these questions? I had worked with Farah on a, a few other projects um, before and, and since. I met Farah doing a feature-length documentary called The Remix uh, Hip Hop and Fashion, which was uh, at Tribeca and was on Netflix for a while. And the documentary explores several different primary uh, personalities and characters, if you will. But one of the the subject of the documentary, if, if you will, is uh, a woman named Misa Hilton. She did the styling for a lot of groundbreaking music videos and, and uh, recording artists. Like she's responsible for Little Kim's, the outfits like the bare-breasted with the pasty jumpsuit and Missy Elliott. And uh, I, I don't want to misquote who she styled, but... Um, Basically, part of the documentary was shining a light on her significance for uh, for culture and and for fashion. And so she was the creative director for this music video, which most music videos don't have a creative director. Advertisements and commercials do. Usually it's just a recording artist and the label and the director. But in this case, Misa collaborated with Farah as the director. And Misa had a very big role in the vision of, of this music video. And it was a very, very ambitious schedule. I think we shot for two days and we had, I think, 11 different scenarios, five of them uh, in the studio and six different locations. And the story arc was about the circulation of, of currency and especially supporting Black businesses, Black community and Black culture, supporting Black culture by featuring small businesses and the circulation of, of money as empowerment. We had a Harriet Tubman $20 bills featured in the video as a prominent visual theme. And we had a grand opening of a nail salon to celebrate, you know, small business. And we had a table of women who were all different activists uh, in real life, counting money and looking through sort of blueprints for different community organizations that they were going to there's just a lot there's a lot in there that yeah, are are very uh, and and the the video won um best music video at the Urban World Film Festival in in 2020 as you mentioned it shot in a bunch of different locations but it all melded so seamlessly together was there any communication with Rhapsody before the video takes place sometimes you're speaking with the artist directly and sometimes they just show up and you show up and you meet. You're like, hi, let's shoot this thing for the next two days. Usually I don't meet the artist until the shoot, but the director has. So um, Farah likes to do a lot of prep and Farah is a very visual director. So the ideas, these different locations and, and scenarios and how they related to one another and what she wanted them to look like, she had that already for me when I was, you know, brought on to the project. So. Uh, I imagine that that was discussed quite thoroughly with with Rhapsody, especially since, you know, the theme of the song. And also that the song is part of an album where the entire album is each individual song is named after a strong woman figure from history. So this song being called Oprah right. was about money and, and empowerment, but the album being called Eve as in Adam and Eve, and there are different songs featuring different strong and noteworthy women characters. What were some of the 
approaches you took after speaking with Farah about the concept and the storyline? Do you remember certain ideas that you were thinking about in terms of, okay, how are we going to light this or frame this, especially when considering the thematic ideas that were very strong and at the forefront of this song? You know, Farah had a few references that we talked over and um, explored and did some back and forth about in pre-production. Um, one of those was the uh, Huey Newton Black Panther portrait with the chair and the shields and the spears that we also brought the production designer into those conversations about, you know, what were these sets going to look like? I think it was Misa's idea to have the camera underneath Rhapsody. So she's dancing on a piece of plexiglass. Right. So we're looking up and, and there was like a, a another reference that Misa had seen that inspired that, you know, sort of like, how are we going to do that? Like we have to build a, a box that we can put me and the camera inside of looking up. And then the plexiglass needs to be thick enough to support the weight of a human. And it's like the bigger the span of plexi, the more it flexes. So it has to sort of be as small as possible. And how thick does it need to be? And then it's very expensive. And, you know, the bigger it is, the more expensive it is, but it needs to be safe <laughs> enough. So like the, the construction of this plexiglass box, you know, took a lot of consultation of, you know, talking to other key grips and who's done this before right. and kind of thing in terms of the feeling confident and secure on the safety, you know, load bearing aspect to it. There was another, um, I mentioned before them sort of counting the money and, and putting them in different piles for the different organizations that was inspired by Dead Presidents, the movie right. Dead Presidents. So we had sort of our little Dead Presidents homage set up. As a DP, are you thinking in this context specifically, okay, this is the starting out point. How am I going to take my own spin and of course serve the story, but you know, were there certain approaches that you thought about taking in terms of the lighting? Yes. And, and part of it is what I love about music videos is the creative freedom and sure. how it's all about the visuals. So, you know, we prepped it a lot because we had so many scenarios to pack into a short period of time and therefore I needed to work with the gaffer to be ready to sort of be leapfrogging and work ahead like okay while we're you know shooting this section you're pre-lighting this next section and whatnot but there was also you know it wasn't all predetermined that it was sort of like there was room for spontaneity and exploration as well so when we got to that loading dock for example, like we had this seed of an idea, but it was sort of like, oh, what is here to work with and what inspires us about this space? And so we sort of just like cracked the door at the bottom and let the light come through. And then I like white balanced the camera in this blue sort of way. And I took, you know, HMI spotlight and just like shined it in this like really narrow path that LK and, and Rhapsody sort of like danced in and out of this light so they were getting like bright and dark we just sort of like you know found it and massaged it to be like what's working and what's not working and that's what i love the most about music videos you know as long as it looks cool you can't fuck it up right. so there's there's sort of like no pressure about getting it right or uh, like oh this is taking too long and it's like okay we we've got the time that we've got what can we do and what new fresh ideas you know do we have that can elevate this and make it our own Another project that I love to discuss too, which sounds in many ways like the opposite of what you just described, <laughs> where you have the flexibility to just run an experiment, is East New York, which you spoke about before. That sounds like a really interesting, unique challenge. 
my understanding. When East New York started, the pilot was shot and a director of photography that was not you shot that. But then after the pilot was shot and it was decided that the show would be greenlit, you stepped in as series DP, I think split some duties with someone else. Yes. It sounds like you're very pivotal in that space to help define what the show is going to continue to look like and moving forward over the trajectory of the season. What is that process like stepping in at the beginning of the show and collaborating and planning, you know, how you're going to tell this story visually? That's a great question. So yes, you're correct. The the pilot was shot by another DP named Cliff Charles, and he was not available for the series. And myself and Zeus Morand were hired to alternate as the series DPs. And we had never met one another before, but uh, we knew each other's names and each other's work just from New York from over the years. It started with a, a conversation between he and I and, you know, getting familiar with each other's work and styles of how literal do we need to be about the look of the pilot and what might we want to do differently or, you know, just the pilot's really just one episode. So what do you do with that? And in terms of being the seed and the spark of like, this has been established already. So sort of taking that and being true to that and then also being inspired by that. But then what's your own voice and what's your own interests and what do you keep the same and what do you do different and what do you expand upon and what do you tie back to the pilot, et cetera. So it started with a big conversation between he and I about our our tastes and our, our interests. And we shot some tests. We did a lighting test with the principal actors. We did a few lens tests. You know, one of the things that we both agreed is that we wanted to use some lenses that were softer than the lenses used on the pilot were very crisp. So we were like, how far can we push things without abandoning the look of the show that has been established? Where is that boundaries? I think it's an interesting challenge just observing from the sidelines, just because New York has been portrayed in so many different ways throughout the years. Were you looking at other New York-centric projects and thinking about what you liked and what you didn't? Yeah, the... Creators of the show and the executive producers came from NYPD Blue. Mm, So that had a sort of pedigree of that. But that's, you know, that show was a different era and a different style. And it had a groundbreaking style at that time. You know, that style sort of run its course. And it's not something that we were looking to necessarily emulate. But we still need went and had a look at that. And then we looked at some of the current Dick Wolf shows in terms of what is the current expectation with the police procedural and what what else is out there and like you said analyzing what what do we like this about this what don't we like about this what might we like but is not appropriate for our show and how we want to you know, make it our own kind of thing so you know we both looked at the pilot for one of the FBI shows as a point of discussion of sort of like okay let's look at the same thing and discuss it like what do we respond to what do we like what do we, what ideas might it give us kind of thing. And, you know, f- found that a, a lot of TV these days is is just really beautifully shot. Like yeah. it's not just fast and scrappy and ugly and rushed. <laughs> or at least it, I mean, it is rushed, but the idea is for it to not look rushed. Right, right. It's part of our jobs or what makes us good at our jobs. I found it interesting that both Zeus and I had a, a beauty background and they picked two beauty DPs to shoot a cop show. Do you have any theories on why they did that? I do, actually. I I don't think they said, let's go find a beauty DP. But in terms of what they saw 
in my work and what they saw in his work were, were both very, very compatible. We're great, great partners and a great match. So I feel very lucky about that. But they wanted the show to have a beauty to it and, and wanted people to look good, but not in a way that tips into artifice. Like it's not a glamour show sure. whatsoever. So it's like it's got a realism and a naturalism and an energy and a, a grittiness in a way. But it also has a polish and a beauty that doesn't ever feel polished. That takes a certain amount of skill that I, I think not just anybody could jump into that show, pull off what he and I did on that time frame and, and have it look consistently that balance of everyone looks as good as they should without it looking like we're trying like they're supposed to look good. <laughs> right. This gritty beauty they are talking about on, from a technical level, are there certain approaches that you utilize to perfect that or achieve that rather? Everything was really, really fast. You know, speed comes first and episodic television. We've got to, got to be honest about that. And you're talking about the speed in which you're shooting it on set. Yes. Doing nine pages a day right. or six scenes a day or, you know, or you've only got like an hour or an hour and a half to shoot an entire scene. So working within those time constraints is sort of like the first and foremost. In a way, we have a lot of resources at our disposal in terms of tools and crew size and whatnot. But the thing that we don't have is time. And so all the other things that they're spending money on are to make everything happen fast. <laughs> so do you set rules for yourself when you know you have to finish an entire scene in an hour and a half? Yeah. The, the number one thing with that, I think, actually comes down to blocking. And the directors are, are guest directors very often. So they're leaning on the DPs and the ADs about how fast our machine operates. And like we know better than they do how much we can get done in a certain amount of time. So if we do a rehearsal and the blocking of the actors starts going in a direction that's going to mean that we're going to have to do a whole lot of shots in order to cover everyone in all the different positions they stopped in, we're never going to have time for that. <laughs> so, and then it's like, okay, if we're moving a lot and we're seeing 360, then we need to hang all the light from the ceiling in order to have the freedom to, to look around. So then that's sort of an upfront time, you know, that you're spending on lighting, knowing like, oh, okay, once we're lit, we can look anywhere and it's going to go fast once we're lit, but it's going to take a while to light it because we need to get ladders in here and then figure out how to balance all the levels and exposure in all the different directions that we're looking, et cetera. So I would go into the day with the call sheet, the AD would have given me the times and we would have discussed it in advance, but so it wasn't a surprise, but here's your map of the day. You've got two and a half hours for this scene, you know, an hour and a half for this scene, three right. hours for this scene. And those were based on how complex the scene was. If if, it, if the scene had five people in it <laughs> kind of thing, then that's a lot of people looking in a lot of directions at a lot and a lot of eye lines that needed to be covered. So it was, it was a lot of like eye line puzzle math of like, if this person turns to this person for a glance, like, do we need to cover that? Like, you know, or, you know, this person is addressing this person. So it would sort of be to sort of simplify the number of shots of like, well, if we put the two of them over there, um, you know, two of our main characters, Killian and Morales, were very often together. So it was like, okay, put them on the same side so that when it's like one person talking to two, as opposed to one person talking to individual directions, and then you 
creating this triangle. Now you've just added two more shots. Oh, God. So <laughs> it was always thinking about basically how to keep it simple and choosing your battles of where to spend the time. Like, okay, this is going to be a really emotional performance scene. So like give the actors the freedom. We're not going to take the time in setting up seven shots. We want to give the time to letting them explore their performance or if they need some time to find it or ramp up, which our actors frankly never did. They were so fast. <laughs> they, they knew all their lines. We would rehearse and sort of find it in the rehearsal. And then once that rehearsal process was, was done, they sort of had it locked in and, you know, just delivered in like, you know, one or two takes. Seems like actors really earn their money on serial TV. Yes. Like you step <laughs> under that spot and you perform. Looking back, is there particular scenes or shots that you're really proud of in terms of a problem you solved or a creative decision you made? My favorite scene visually is in episode 13, directed by Lou Diamond Phillips. We have a big night exterior human trafficking bust. And it was maybe like five or six pages of content, which is a lot for us. Most of our scenes are very short, like a two and a half page scene would be long for us. But this was like multiple scenes in a row in this space as they discovered what was happening and then did the bust and then the aftermath of the bust of, of you know, discussing with the people about the story aspects of what this was all about and et cetera. So that was very, very visual. It was raining, uh, which was gorgeous. It was a pain in the ass for the crew yeah, that was <laughs> to, my do, next thought, but. to deal with the, the weather, <laughs> but it looked, it looked beautiful with all the reflecting colored lights and the location was fantastic. And it was a really big space to need to light and took a lot of resources to do that. But everyone recognized that like when it was written that way, when we found the location, we're like, okay, this is going to take uh, a lot of lighting. So, you know, spent a lot of time prepping that one deciding, you know, what colors that I wanted to use, you know, what areas did I want to be more in shadow and more dark where you maybe can't see what's going on or something's just in silhouette versus other things that needed to be seen clearly from a quick story, you know, that when, as soon as you see it, you understand what you're, right. what you're seeing versus like building mystery and, and suspense. And so that's one of my favorite, favorite scenes. And these are all available on Paramount Plus, Check it by out. the way. And another one was in uh, episode 10, which actually Zeus had COVID and I had to take over one of his episodes that he had prepped. So you switched off every episode? Yeah, we alternated. Yeah. yeah. So otherwise I was shooting odds and he was shooting evens. But in this case, I shot three in a row. And there's a scene where Sandiford, played by uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson, he kind of goes rogue. Like his partner has been shot and he's trying to get to the bottom of who's responsible for it. And the detectives, of course, are all investigating that and trying to figure it out. But because he he was there when he was shot, like they're like, you can't be involved. You can't know what's going on. We can't tell you what's going on. Like you're going to be a witness when this goes to trial. We can't taint your experience of knowing what's happening here. So he's feeling very shut out of the thing and, and kind of goes rogue and, and finds out on his own, like who was responsible for shooting his partner and goes after him. And you, you're starting to wonder, like, is he off the rails? Is he going to kill this guy? Right. Is he going to basically sabotage his entire police career and his future and his life and get sent to prison for killing somebody? He's like that frayed. So the scene for that was shot on stage 
And, you know, m- most of the scenes I'm most excited about my work and my lighting was actually location work because a lot of the sets got repetitive and I, I fail to see how good and how interesting they look because they all sort of blend. The ones that stand out to me are, are the ones that are more outliers, um, even though that work is all very solid and, and certainly could be proud of it when looking at it for, for its own sake. But this particular scene was shot on stage and the set was just really dirty and gross, sort of like a flop house kind of thing. And I really leaned into the grittiness of it in terms of how I lit it. I used some filters that were like fog filters because they wouldn't let us use atmospheric haze on the stages. But I wanted that sort of feel. So I used some very strong and heavy filters and like lit it with boarded up windows with sort of like slats of light coming through. And we did some interesting shifts of the color tonality in the grading. And it has a look to it that has a feel that just really leans into the storytelling and the emotion of the characters and the emotion of the scene. While I was shooting, I was just like, I love how this looks. I was like, I want to shoot a whole show that looks like this. (laughs) (laughs) You just start pitching that. You're like, well, why don't we just shoot the rest of the show like Like this? this. The rest of the the show is not that. So it was sort of like that was a, a unique scene that that, you know, visually appropriate for. And those are the kinds of things that I get excited about. So that scene's on my website just because I like how it looks so much. Yeah, it looks really great. You mentioned too, in terms of camera usage, there were some interesting techniques that were employed. Mm -hmm. Uh, You discussed how for many of the shots you're using high-end cameras, you also integrated with FX3 camera. Yes. And uh, it, it sounds really interesting in terms of how you're taking these higher end cameras and integrating these different images together. What was your approach to doing this and why? Our producing director, Mike Robin, has done a few other TV shows recently, like All Rise. And they used a lot of Blackmagic cameras, especially during the pandemic when they were doing a lot of remote cameras. And he came to us with the idea, which was something they had done in the pilot of of having, he called them the little friends. So having, (laughs) you know, we, we ended up buying three of them having an arsenal of of small cameras at your disposal that you can just sort of, you know, stick into tight spaces or throw it up on a on a C stand or stick it in a fridge or, you know, strap it to a car, you know, things that are released from the constraints of the giant camera that has all of the transmitters and follow focuses and and all this other stuff to it. So I liked the idea of that, but uh, found the the Blackmagic pocket cameras sort of lacking from a ergonomic usability standpoint. Mm. Certainly the image quality is is fantastic. Um, so it's sort of like what else is out there? And a lot of people are, I'd heard like, oh, if you're using the Venice, you should look at the Sony FX3, the the color science of that is a very good match with the Venice. So it's not a one-to-one match, but sort of like what it needs in color correction to get it to match the, being that they're both in a sort of Sony color space is just a lot faster and simpler than getting the Blackmagic to match, which which you can because the range is there in the Blackmagic. I don't want to badmouth the Blackmagic, but, um, you know, the, the shape of it is, you know, sort of just plastic and the changing of the lens mounts is... You can't really put a PL mount on it without taking the face off the camera and doing a permanent mod to it and hot rotting the camera. So it just seemed like the FX3 was a better choice. So we did a a bunch of 
really thorough tests in during prep, taking it through post-production because I knew that the post department and the producing director were sold on the Blackmagic cameras. And I was like, I'm going to have to prove the Sony cameras. And I, I hadn't used them in this way before. I didn't know that they would pass the test or not. It was just going to be a, you know, are these good enough for prime time? And we were shocked at how good they are. Yeah. <laughs> like, frankly, shocked. Like, it has a dual native ISO, one of which is 12,800, meaning that it's not grainy or noisy at, at 12,000. So we, we put it through its paces. Everyone was very, very impressed with it. So we didn't hesitate to use it. Gave the example, we stuck in a fridge. We use them for surveillance cameras. Being police and detective work, there's a lot of, you know, surveillance camera footage that comes into evidence for some of the cases. We used it in the um, interrogation room. There's uh, evidence cameras when they are interviewing a suspect that, you know, is part of the process. So there's like monitors and cameras. We use them for that. One of the most exciting ways that I used it was a chase scene where we took one on a, a little Ronin, a, a RS2, that's one of the one-handed gimbals, not one of the big, big ones that supports a full-size camera, one that supports a little camera. And, you know, use the autofocus capabilities of the, of the camera, which are fantastic, actually. And our camera operator, David Quaitman, that we brought in, who owns a bunch of gimbals and is a bit of a gimbal expert, just like set him loose running after our actors <laughs> down the street. And on autofocus? Too. On autofocus. So no pulling. It yeah. was all, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, we were shooting with such a wide lens that there's a plenty of um, depth of field right. and margin for error for how fast people are moving. But but also, frankly, the autofocus is really good. Some of those shots are, I think, one of the, some of the most innovative shots. Like people saw that. You know, I think it's the most exciting action sequence of, of our scenes all, all season long. And, and that's largely due to the visceral, you know, speed of, of just being wide angle, right up close to people like running really, really, really fast is just really exciting. Yeah. And that was intercut with B camera on Steadicam mounted to an electric car and A camera on a big, long, you know, Panavision zoom lens, you know, with the dolly track, the entire block long sidewalk across the street. And, you and know, it held went, its own. Yeah. Speaking of different technology. You know, you've worked in this space for a while. As you watch technology evolve, are there things you're noticing in terms of how image making is changing from when you started or the way the medium is evolving that you're excited about? Well, something that's changed, I'd say, for worse is the idea that these cameras have so much range that you can just um, decide how it's going to look in post and really sort of devaluing the cinematographer's contribution. Like I've heard of, of people who had a whole movie that the, the director just color corrected the movie and like didn't invite the DP <laughs> to be involved. People reframe things in post because there's so much resolution. You know, people change exposure and the, and the color balance and whatnot in post without consulting the DP or even, you know, the view changing that the DP doesn't even need to be involved in that is, is something that I, I think has changed for worse and that I don't don't agree with. Things that have changed for better, I was mentioning this little tiny Sony FX3 camera, image quality wise is uh, holding its own against professional, you know, major motion picture camera of the Venice. And so people are like, well, why even bother using the Venice? And it's like, well, it's a lot easier to use in a professional production environment in terms of the accessorizing and the workflow and the 
ergonomics, uh, et cetera, just way, way faster and, and easier to work with. But the reality is image quality wise, this tiny little, you know, $2,000 camera is practically just as good as the Venice. So that's exciting from a independent filmmaking standpoint. Like I wouldn't hesitate to, you know, shoot a music video or something on the camera as a primary camera. Like I don't see the point of renting a really expensive camera when you have a limited budget, like when small cameras and cheap cameras are good enough, like put your money into other things that are going to make a bigger difference and in, into how the project actually looks. So yeah, advancements in, in small cameras and affordable technology and the accessibility and the democratization of, of filmmaking, you know, has pros and its cons, but sure. l- largely is very exciting in terms of what people are able to create with very little resources. Also, the advancements in, in wireless lighting technology and LED technology I can count the number of times that we used, I call them analog lights, <laughs> on our on our show. Uh, other than 20Ks, like 20K Fresnels or um, some 10K um, uh, Fresnels that we would use in the studio to be large sources coming through windows to emulate daylight, there there is still not um, equivalent LED lights that replace those sort of large workhorse lights. Um, but other than though, you know, those were a regular part of our our set lighting scenarios that but otherwise everything was wireless and not being wireless was a liability because of timing. You know, it's sort of like our our workflow and our process of like lighting the set, doing a rehearsal, making adjustments, you know, doing a, a rehearsal with stand ins and sort of just like looking at the monitor and being like, bring this up, bring this down, bring this down 10 points make this more blue, make this more orange, and just being able to, all I do is speak it and it happens. In the past, it would be like, oh, you got to bring in a ladder to put a scrim in the light. You got to go, you know, find a piece of gel and clip the gel to the, it was just so much, so much slower. And it's become an expectation now that there's, there's just no, there's just no time for that. So having a, a lighting programmer has become a very important role who, you know, understands what you're doing and knows all the tools and is is quick enough, um, you know, to build a queue really quick. Big development compared to what it used to be like. Jendra, thanks so much for spending your time here today. We're glad you're still NYC based. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents, available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes.